Greetings, dear listeners. This week, we spoke with our friend, the Berlin-based journalist Elizabeth Zorowski. In part one, we discussed the upcoming French election and the rise of the far right in France. In part two, we went on to debate the evolving German response to the war in Ukraine. Part two is for subscribers only. As you may have noticed, Elizabeth and the political philosopher Samuel Kimbriel have joined the Wisdom of Crowds team as contributing writers. They'll be writing for us regularly and joining us to talk about events as opportunities arise. We're thrilled to have them on board. Feel free to give them a warm welcome in the comments or on Twitter, and keep an eye out for their work in our feed. We're excited about adding to the Wisdom of Crowds team and look forward to growing more in the coming weeks and months. We couldn't do any of this without you. Thank you for the support. Okay, on to the show. Um, Elizabeth, welcome. Listen, yes, thank uh, you. Uh, we want to talk about two things with you today. Um, the first one being France. Uh, we've got mm -hmm. a French election coming up. You have a masterful, magnificent, and quite long piece in uh, the New York Times that came out when, in March, was that? Yeah, it came out uh, actually maybe early April, just early before April. the first round of the of the French election. Well, let me ask you one quick question. Did it come out before the panic hit about Le Pen, uh, who is running in the runoff uh, against Emmanuel Macron this weekend? It came out, it's like, okay, this is a little bit of a sort of nerdy insider baseball sort of thing, but with these magazine stores, you essentially, you send them to print and then they come out like a week or sometimes even like eight or nine days later. Mm. And so we sent the piece to print and the polls were already sort of going wild because this was in mid-March and um, essentially it was the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the war that sent, that made the polls start to go kind of, kind of bonkers in France. And so um, those polls actually changed during the week in which we had already sent the piece to mm. the print and before, before it came out. And so, you know, on the one hand, it was a little bit unfortunate because um, that was when I think the... Um, the sort of economic effects of the war were really starting to be felt uh, in France and, and across Europe, but, but in France. And so um, that's when uh, Marine Le Pen, who had been running a campaign on cost of living, her numbers started to, um, to go way up. So it was a little bit unfortunate. On the other hand, I'm, I, I will argue um, that I think that the sort of main argument in my piece stands and that it will stand. And that's my prediction. And I, oh, of course <laughs> I it does. stick with it. But, um, but when the piece came out, it, it didn't necessarily look that, look that way. Let me, let me just share one um, little tidbit with you. I think I brought it up maybe in the bonus episode of, uh, of last week, uh, but it's something that, that our friend Ben Haddad mentioned um, to me. And just tell me if this sounds right to you as far as the, uh, what you, you know, as you were working on the piece and, and sort of talking to people. He said that, that uh, in France, where he's at right now in Paris, that you know, there was a palpable feeling when the war started that the populists were screwed because of their allegiance to Putin and that you know, yeah. this was a, a real setback. But he said that, that what struck him when the panic hit, and this is what I was asking you about when your piece came out, um, that the, 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 the panic revealed for him a different possibility, which was that earlier on the war, the French were actually really worried that the war would come to them, that it could go nuclear. And that at that point, Macron's sort of elder statesman uh, thing kicked in and all the other candidates really lost. And it was misinterpreted mm. as having had like a negative effect on 
uh, populism. And that what he thought uh, the surge in Le Pen showed is less that, you know, he said French people still think Russia is the aggressor, is evil, it's wrong, Ukrainians are heroes. But all of a sudden, that's over there for them. And that Le Pen's surge, again, sort of points to what her tactic was, which you just said, which was to basically run on bread and butter issues from the beginning. Um, I don't know, is that, does that sound right to you? Is that like... Uh... Um, well, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think to, to, to a certain extent, you have to look at, of course, uh, which groups of voters each of these candidates are are targeting. And so, of course, Marine Le Pen, you know, she has this, uh, she's been, her, her campaign has been focused on, um, let's say, uh, they say the popular voters, working class voters um, on both the left, potentially left and right side of the spectrum. Um, and so, of course, when the prices start to rise, those are the people who are going to really be feeling those those price increases. Not so much, you know, uh, Macron's um, proven, you know, <laughs> more uh, professional and higher salaried uh, voters, and who tend to be who tend to be urban, who tend to be, you know, not driving cars, not buying gasoline, that sort of thing. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the sort of interesting test case here also is Eric Zemmour, because Eric Zemmour. Um, he also, of course, was a, a sort of Putin, Putin admirer and, and in some ways much more kind of ideological and much more sort of outspoken about it. I mean, he has this crazy quote where he said something about how, you know, he admires Putin as having, you know, having had the, having had the, um, the courage to try and restore a great nation to what it once was. And he said this a couple of years ago, but of course now that, that looks completely terrifying and, and, um, and, and even more sort of horrible than it might have been a couple of years ago. But anyway, Eric Zemmour's, uh, Eric Zemmour's voters are also, you know, um, more urban, wealthier, uh, more educated, and that sort of thing. And his numbers, his numbers sank, and they just they kept sinking, and they just stayed that way. So you kind of have to wonder, first of all, you know, are both are, are Marine, are Marine Le Pen's uh, voters, I don't want to sound condescending, but are they really paying attention to these sort of more, more are they the ideological uh, questions about, you know, who's supporting Putin and why? And they're not the ones who are sitting, you know, in some wealthy suburb of Paris reading Le Figaro. They're sort of out in these more, uh, these more uh, rural areas. And, and just as some background, I mean, Zamor in the first round of the elections end up with only about 7%, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, so yes. he under he under he underperformed and it's worth noting to those who aren't really familiar with French politics, Zemmour isn't just a right winger. He is very very far right. And um so for example, he supports the great replacement theory quite explicitly and in somewhat lurid detail he talks about Arabs and blacks, and he's kind of racist, let's say, <laughs> and um, kind of racist. Um, it is interesting, though, that he's originally um, Algerian. Um, well, uh, his his parents um, his parents are from Algeria. He's Jewish, and it, there was also an odd this odd development that the leader of a far a far right movement is Jewish, which is a new thing for French radical right politics. But he underperformed, and Marine Le Pen ended up with about 23, 24% in, in the first round. So if we want to think about it, Marine Le Pen is the normal far right, and then Eric Zemmour is 
to the right of her and these two individuals running for the presidency um, ended up gaining a significant swath of public support. So, you know, however this ends up and, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this knock on wood, but Macron is likely to win. But even if even if he does win by a wide margin, the French far right is a force of nature and it's growing and we can talk about why it's so compelling. And I think in your piece, it, first of all, I'll just you know reiterate what Demir said. It, it's a brilliant piece. I read it literally right before we recorded the podcast. It is long, but it is awesome. And um, I think it captures what I've tended to argue is one of the main dividing lines in France and in Western Europe, which is Muslims and Islam. And that really comes out in your article, I think there's someone who says to you when you're interviewing them that this election is a referendum for or against Muslims. And that's remarkable if we just linger on that for a moment, that with everything else going on, the pocketbook issues that Demir mentioned, but also the war in Ukraine, that the place of Islam in public life and the role of French Muslims um, is so paramount and is driving the conversation to such a degree, um, even to the extent, and I, I'd be curious, Elizabeth, if you could say more about this, that in the um, the mainstream center-right party, the Republicans in France, and they, they didn't do well at all in, in the first round, but in their primary, um, the interviewer or the host asked them what they thought about the great replacement theory, i.e. the idea that Muslims and black people and brown people are replacing the native French population and France will become maybe a Muslim majority state in 50 years, that none of them, none of the candidates in the primary for the mainstream center-right party were willing to explicitly disavow the great replacement theory. So I have to say, I was, you know, I was pretty shocked by that. And I tried to express that in the piece. And, you know, again, as a reporter, and at least as a reporter in these kinds of pieces, you're somewhat limited to the types of things that you can say, because it, it, it is a reported piece. It's not an essay. And so I can't sort of explicitly always state what I think. But I had not been, you know, I used to live in Paris and I live in Germany. I had not been to France during essentially two years of uh, of the pandemic. And there was lots of turbulence that went on during that time. There were protests against uh, police violence, uh, ra racially uh, racially targeted police violence. There was t terrorist attacks. There was all sorts of stuff that happened. So I missed all of that. I came back in November of, for the first time, November of, what was last year? 2021. And so I just sort of, and I was in Paris and I was seeing people that I hadn't, yeah, yeah, um, that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I just was sort of, I was really surprised at the just total saturation of kind of talk about immigration and all this great replacement talk and that sort of thing. And so I happened to turn on the TV and I watched the, that first um, debate of Les Républicains, which is, again, the supposedly uh, center-right um, party in France. France and you have um, you know you have people who are running. Michel Barnier was a candidate. He was the EU uh, Brexit negotiator. So these are you know these are uh, you know mainstream French political uh, political political figures. Um, and yeah, and the moderator asked them if they would use you know if they would use the phrase "great replacement," and not a single one of them would 
sort of disavow it. They mostly kind of said, ah, well, you know, I don't really like that phrase, but, you know, it's true that French people feel this way. And, you know, so I don't want to Something's I don't going lie, on. And I don't want to deny <laughs> what French people feel. <laughs> and I just, you know, I just was really, I was really shocked by that. Um, that none of them would dare to say like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is, you know, this is, there may be demographic change happening in France, like the country may be diversifying. A, there is a policy in France that they don't keep statistics based on race. So you can't, you don't have any sort of database where you can go and say, okay, this is what the, you know, this is what the population, the population of, let's say, of, you know, North African origin was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and this is what it is. Elizabeth? Elizabeth, you're cutting out a bit. Um, can you, are you, how's your internet? Are you near a router or something like that? Because you're just, uh, you just dropped out a, a, for a couple of seconds. Okay. I am not near a router, but I could get, I can go to, go near one. If you could near one, get near a router, that would be, that'd be great. Just so we can. Yeah. We know that Wi-Fi isn't good in Germany. Nothing's good in Germany. We'll get to that. Germany's <laughs> declining power. I think Germany is the new sick man, the new sick man of Europe. Um, no, it's true. Okay, but let's 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 stick to France. Um, so, so well, here, here, here's, here's a question for you. Uh, you know, to your point about about uh, the demographics changing. Um, what strikes yeah. me is less about what's so, underlying but can I just this. Say, I think yeah, it's go ahead. One thing, yeah, I just want to say it's one thing to sort of acknowledge, and I, this is what I meant to say in my piece, and I, it just sort of got cut out. But it's one thing to acknowledge that okay, there are demographic, there are demographic changes going on. It's another thing to say that like white people are being replaced by non-white people. It's you know, and 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 for politicians who are supposedly on the mainstream right to just sort of go along with that seems I was really shocked by that. What, what's striking to me, Elizabeth, you know, apart from the. Uh, whatever the underlying reality is, uh, the demographic reality. In a sense, maybe I don't even care about what the underlying reality is, the demographic mm. things, like these things happen and, you know. But what's striking about it is that there's, there's, a, there's an erosion of a norm that seems to have happened no. in the intervening period. That, that even in the last election, you know, where Le Pen had her strongest showing, right, um, and still was handily defeated by uh, Macron in the second round, there was still a sense that, like, this was beyond the pale. And that seems to have shifted. That That's some kind of norm, some social norm about yes. like things you just not talk about in French politics shifted. But let me then just ask you the other part, which is perplexing and you can, you know, I mean, but also really troubling, right? Is that, that in a way Zemmour normalized her because he was saying the really crazy, ugly stuff and saying it out loud, which allowed her to be sort of an economic populist saying like, I just care about your pocketbook but her brand is still there. The Le Pen brand is, I think you even mentioned uh, her niece, Marichal, talking about the strength of the Le Pen brand and the dog yeah. whistles that it it, yeah. it sort of sends to the public. That really resonated for me in the sense that, that the fact that you have like a, a truly nutty candidate saying the really nasty stuff, um, in a, in a weird way, then if she's not saying it out loud, but everyone knows yeah. what she stands for, it just makes everyone more comfortable with it. Yes, I think that's definitely, um, I think that's, that's, there's, that's definitely true. Um, I'll say two things. One is that, so, of course, Zemmour and Marine Le Pen are both, um, you know, they're both far-right candidates, but they are addressing uh, different audiences. Uh, Marine Le Pen is speaking to a working class, you know, working class, uh, sort of right-wing, right-wing um, voting segment. And Zemmour, his audience is really much more of this kind of, 
urban, conservative, much more sort of Catholic, at least culturally Catholic, uh, wealthy, uh, in France, we would say, they would say uh, bourgeois, um, you know, people who are reading Le Figaro, which is the main sort of Wall Street Journal of France and who, who are sort of having debates in the pages of Le Figaro. So there's talking, they're, they're essentially talking to two separate groups of people. Um, and, um, and in some ways, this is, you know, this is kind of the classic, this is kind of the classic uh, right-wing divide in many, in many Western countries. You have the same thing to a certain extent in the United States where like Trump, he needed to kind of appeal to both working class voters and he needed to get sort of wealthy, you know, business Republican elites on his side. So you had the same kind of, kind of coalition type of thing. Um, but um, so Marine Le Pen and Zemmour are talking to, um, are talking to different audiences. And, and Marine Le Pen, though she is a far-right candidate, she's not really... Um, She's not really part of this kind of, you know, conservative, intellectual, urban, Le Figaro reading and op-ed writing crowd that's based in Paris. And not only is she not really part of it, she's not participating in it, but the people who are part of it don't, they don't really like her. They look down on her. Um, they don't consider her, you know, to be one of them. Um, so that's, you know, so, so and, and it's in sort of this, this, uh, more urban bourgeois elite, you know, Catholic conservative crowd that these, that these really sort of uh, more intellectual, if you want to call them intellectual, they're not really intellectual, but they are cultural, culture war debates, right, that are going on. So it's really in, in sort of Zemmour's crowd and the people whose ears he has that all this, this conversation about the so-called great replacement is happening. Marine Le Pen is sort of on the outside of that in a way. And so, and especially in the election this year, she really kind of focused on, um, on trying to, uh, trying to get those, those working class voters. So, so that's part of it is that they're in some ways talking to different people and talking about different things. And Zamora is the one who's really sort of carrying on this culture war. Um, but, but yeah, but, but it's, yes, sorry. I mean, <laughs> but it, it, so, you know, Shadi said earlier on, you know, if you add up Zamor, uh, Zamor's numbers and Le Pen's numbers, you have a, yes. you know, a strikingly high number of the electorate voting for, you know, what I think your, your article pretty persuasively says is, is actually motivated by a, a kind of very virulent xenophobia and uh, anti-Islamism, yes. right? So, but but it's interesting what you say there, though. At the same time, you know, the fact that Le Pen shifted to this sort of economic populism did she did she just shift her traditional low information voters from a focus on xenophobia? to pocketbook issues and just kept them? And then Zamor just added some wealthy people who also just happened to hate Muslims? Is that what happened? Or, you know, like, how, how's the, the anti-Muslim coalition being built, I guess, is the question. So I think that it's partly it's not, I, I think what you see is that you have the potential. So this is partly sort of the point of my story, right? Is that you can see if you, as Shadi said, if you add up Marine Le Pen's voters, you add up Zamor's voters, that you have a significant part of the population um, but as of right now, there's still two separate sort of voting, voting sectors. And so um, you're so what they need is one person who can come in and speak to both of them. And both of those different groups of people like this person are willing to vote for them. And that person would potentially be able to win. And so you, that hasn't happened yet. And so that's everyone thinks that that will be Marine's niece, Mario Marichal. But that's an unproven. So unproven. So I guess. Jesus. A deeper, a deeper question that I've been struggling with, and it, I think it requires someone to be on the ground and to get some of the distinctive color from right-wing rallies, which you were able to attend um, at various points during during the campaigning. When you're 
you know, being being in France and sort of like absorb absorbing the surrounding sentiment, what do you think the fear of Muslims or antagonism towards them is fundamentally about? And how obvious is it to you? And and maybe just tell us a little bit more about what you experienced and how you're making sense of that. Because I think for American listeners, you know, we have we have racism and we have anti-Muslim sentiment, but it's not like what we're talking about in France, at least as it relates to, to Muslims specifically. And even when it comes to um, racism against blacks or Hispanics, there's there people mo re republicans or trump supporters tend to rely more on veiled messages you're not supposed to be very very outward in your racism where i think right. as we've been talking about in in france some of this discourse that is explicit has be has become normalized so just walk us through through that i didn't really get into this in my piece and it's just it gets to be kind of a delicate thing but you know you have um you have a kind of like rural sort of emptying out as you have in the United States, right? A sort of like urban uh, economies sort of congealing in urban areas and that more exurban and rural areas are losing that they're, you know, they're losing businesses, they're losing services, they're losing all that sort of thing. And so you have like a lot of towns out in the French countryside. This is very well documented that like that are sort of dead and empty and, you know, the downtowns are empty and the storefronts are empty and the, you know, there's just, there's just nothing there the way that there was, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, whatever. Um, and then what happens is that you have, um, you know, you have immigrant families moving into these towns. And, you know, what happens is that sometimes that these, you know, these immigrant families or immigrants, sometimes they're, you know, they're men who are coming from North Africa, that sort of thing. And that they, they're sort of hanging out in these sort of empty, empty downtown, empty downtown areas. And French people see that and they, they don't like it. And I... <sighs> It is and, and what don't they like about it? And, and you don't have to worry about being too delicate with us. Yeah. We're all friends here. And, yeah. uh, and no one's I listening. Mean, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's, I mean, it is essentially, it's a, it's a race. Okay, it's like, it's a race reaction. Like they see non-white people hanging out in their empty downtown areas. And that's, they think that first of all, it's dangerous. They think it's bad. They think it's the great replacement. And they think that they're like formerly nice little French towns are being taken over by and, that's, that's, has, that's, that's, that's the. Sure, yeah. has crime gone up though? I mean, is there, is there, is there a basis around it? I mean, oftentimes there is in this sort of stuff, yes. right? That's the, that's like crime and poverty ends up exacerbating the, the kind of, uh, nervousness and bigotries that, you know, are latent in any one group and especially in sort of small towns that haven't seen this and, you know, strangers, they happen to be different, different faith, different color skin come in and all of a sudden crime goes up and there you go, QED, right? Um, that's, that's... And I think crime has gone up, although I'm not certain the extent to which this is like a recent thing as there has been a crime surge, you know, since the pandemic started in the US and, and elsewhere as well. Mm. So I don't know how but much look, of that is like yeah. super recent or... But, longer. but crime doesn't have to go up for you to feel that it's gone up. So a lot of right. this is about sure. impressions and perceptions. And, you know, we're living in a post-reality world in some sense <laughs> where, I mean, I remember I was watching this, um, this documentary called Philly DA about a progressive district attorney, Larry Krasner, who was elected in Philly, um, you know, my hometown a couple of years back. And he, he keeps on going to these town hall meetings where he, he has all these statistics and he's like, hey, guys, everyone is criticizing me for letting out criminals and for crime going up. But here are the numbers. 
and they actually haven't gone up or they've only gone up a little bit in certain categories. And he thinks that by offering up facts, he can uh, address some of these concerns and get people to chill. But what he finds out is that facts are irrelevant because if you think and feel that crime is a problem, then that's your own reality in some sense. So I think it's, so I, does it really matter if crime has gone up? I mean, especially yeah. if there's like high profile no, incidents that's... that are publicized and then everyone starts, oh, did you hear about that incident, you know? Right. And I think also, you know, in France, there is this culture. It's like they have this sort of race blind culture where they don't they have these, you know, enlightenment ideals about universalism, blah, blah, blah. We don't talk about race. We don't identify people by race. We don't keep statistics by race. We don't talk about, you know, we just don't acknowledge essentially the existence of race. That's the sort of French uh, cultural tradition. And so what they do instead is they talk about Muslims. Right. Like they see non-white people hanging out in their downtown areas or whatever. And they say, oh, like it's Muslims. And so but it's you not get just this. that they, mm. you get but this. it's not just that they look different though. I mean, because there, there's an additional component that, that relates to the civilizational or cultural concerns that, that you, that you talk about in your piece that essentially you have these far right figures who want to defend French civilization. So they see they see this as kind of an epic, almost metaphysical battle. And Muslims, at least as far as I can tell, seem to figure prominently because they represent a competing civilizational orientation, or at least that's the perception that they challenge the sense of Frenchness that many French have taken for granted. And they're introducing new cultural and religious outlooks, especially when it, you know, as it relates to the fact that Muslims are disproportionately observant compared to non-Muslims in France because um, there aren't that many Catholics, practicing Catholics left and so forth. So how, how, how do you see the kind of civilizational aspect of it? Because what was, you know, what's really cool is that I think you got a chance to hang out with uh, Marichal, the, the kind of, um, uh, Le, Le Pen's niece, who is the kind of rising star of the French right. And she seemed like you guys had a night, I don't want to say you had a nice back and forth, but you, you, um, you have this amusing sentence where you say that, you know, when you, when you're entering the building to meet with Marichal, you assume that she'll be distant and cold and all of that, but she was kind of chummy with you and she was wearing somewhat casual clothing, but then, you know, she seems accessible and like nice and I was going to say fun, but I'm not sure if she's like a fun person to hang out with. I mean, it's, but, um, but then she says certain things that completely belie this kind of casual chill vibe that she had with you and where she does really emphasize, I think she says something like authority, order, civilization. She mentions all these like things that characterize the far-right neo-authoritarian mindset. And that to her is what orients her politics. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, I think, I think you, um, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I mean, just to, to, I mean, ask you, and even maybe, I don't know if if this is true though, but when you, you, you look at what Zamor did, right? And it's, what, what Shadi's getting at is is the sort of tension between you know, also there's Frenchness, but there's Frenchness as embodied in laicite. And then, you know, even our, our most progressive French friends will take offense uh, at, you know, the insistence of certain 
you know, recalcitrant <laughs> Muslim communities unwilling to assimilate to these values and ideals of French society. And that's the laicite debate. But that's not exactly what Zamor is going after, right? I mean, it's not, it's not this open faithfulness uh, as such. It's, it's, it's much more it's gritty, of, right? It's grittier it is, xenophobia. It's, you know, they're, again, they're using this sort of laicite, nice sort of legal framework, uh, as a as a crutch to lean on and say oh everything that we're doing is you know part of the French legal and cultural tradition and blah blah blah, but basically what that is is that they don't they don't want any visible sign of Islam in France because they still hold on to France as this sort of historically Christian nation right and it's that's just it I mean sorry it's you know they don't they don't want to see. They don't want to see Islam in France. That's not how they think of France. That's not how they conceptualize of France. That's not how they think of French identity. And they just don't want to see it. So they use, they use these laicite, you know, laws, which are, have been distorted and that sort of thing to say, like, no visible, you know, no visible signs of, of, of Islam in, in France because, you know, uh, Islam is not, you know, is not uh, part of historical French culture and identity and i think you know i think you could you can definitely um you can definitely argue with that which i have tried to do um because of course um you know they say that islam is not part of french tradition it's not part of french history but of course algeria was part of france for 130 years so and it was not even a colony it was literally part of france so they had this whole territory that was you know that, was, that, 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 didn't, that didn't go so well, though, at the end. It turned out, it it turns go so out well that didn't go end. so well. <laughs> yes. No, that's true. But then on the other hand, you have, you know, you have all these young people who are our age who were born, who were born in France and their families, you know, their families are Muslim. And you can't, you can't just say to them, like, no, your identity is not French. Therefore, you must hide it. You just can't do that. I mean, you can try and that's what they're trying to do. But it doesn't uh, it doesn't create a very uh, serene or cohesive civic body, let's say. Well, so let's talk about the the where we are at the elections though. So that was in the run-up. Uh, she outperformed in the very run-up to the first round. People were really terrified that you know she may even tie Macron and you know some polls were showing like really neck and neck. He did pull ahead. Um, and then uh, since then he seems to be have, the last two weeks, he seems to have dominated. And there were, uh, we're recording on Thursday, on yesterday, last night, there were debates that I know I didn't watch. Shadi, you didn't watch either, right? Um, so I don't know, Elizabeth, maybe maybe tell us a little bit about how that went and maybe tell, a little, tell us a little bit about what the state of the race is right now and what do you make of it all? Um, well, the debate was, of course, I don't know how much you... Um, know or remember from the last presidential race uh, five years ago in 2000. Le Pen did uh, terrible, right? And it was like a, a total embarrassment that, right or no? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. So there was a de yeah, debate between Le Pen and Macron and she just was, um, she just, it was very embarrassing for her. She just came across as being totally incompetent and didn't know what she was talking about. And, um, you know, she, she just totally sort of flopped after that. And so I think everyone was, of course, bracing themselves for a repeat of that. And, oh, Marie, you know, Marine Le Pen had five years to prepare. Has she, you know, has she improved? Has she gotten better? And by all sort of accounts, she did do better <laughs> last night. She didn't have any sort of blatantly embarrassing moments. So, um, so you know, good, good for her. She, she sort of improved her image and her, um, 
at least suggestions. Did she win any point? Did, did she win at all? Like it, if we want to talk about winners, I know that's a very American thing that we watch debates and we want to pick some person who won and rank them and all that. But is there a, is there a sense from the coverage you've seen of who came out on top or who or who or who benefited the most in terms of exceeding expectations? Well, um, so there was a poll that was done, you know, of some one of them, you know, sort of center right magazines did a poll. And there was something like 50 something percent thought that Macron won and, um, you know, 30 something percent thought that Marine Le Pen won. But of course, it really depends. <laughs> it really depends who you ask, because I was watching, you know, the Twitter feeds of of, you know, sort of Macron people. And they all said that he did brilliantly. And then if you sort of read these articles about like Marine Le Pen viewers, like, no, she was wonderful because she was calm and she was serene and she was in control. And Macron, um, you know, Macron, he... Um, he um, he came across as uh, very knowledgeable and very sort of technocratic and very sort of immersed in details and very competent and that sort of thing, but also completely uh, completely condescending. He just sort of arrogant, stared at her. one might yeah. say. Yeah, I saw this yeah. uh, Twitter meme where it was like it said something like, "Oh, in the lead up to the elections, Macron's biggest liability is his arrogance, and you know." He should be aware of that. And then it just like cuts to these different photos taken from the debate where he just exudes and maybe he can't help it. Like, you know, I, I don't mean to be mean. I mean, obviously, I want Macron to win and all that. Um, but um, he seems like he can't help himself. He, that's just a look like resting arrogant face. <laughs> that's what Macron has popularized, yeah. I think. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And there's also, there's this like famous line that he said in 2017 that became scandalous, but he made some like one of his, you know, more more famous arrogant remarks was like, oh, you know, I walk through the train station and I see those who are successful and those who are nothing. And he like, that was like the look in his eyes for the whole evening was just staring at Marine Le Pen like you, you are nothing and I am successful. Like, it was like you don't deserve was- to be here. It's like, why are you here on the stage yeah. with me? Do you know who I am? I'm the president and, and I am the state. It's like almost like he embodies the French state and their but the French like that, right? Mind. The French like that in their in their leaders. Unlike the Americans who are proper Democrats, the French love an imperial sort of Napoleonic figure to lead them. I mean, yeah. not wrong, right? Not wrong at all. Not wrong yeah. at all. These are stereotypes. Yeah, that are usually grounded in truth, Shadi. Yeah. We all know that. All stereotypes are grounded in, in truths, deep truths. Um, but they are, of course, the, you know, the, de- the debate is that they are fighting for the voters who um, voted for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is the far left candidate in the first round. He got somewhere around 20 percent. And these are your sort of left wing voters uh, in France and that they are Macron and Le Pen are fighting over those voters because Macron will need to get enough of them to vote for him in order to beat Marine Le Pen on Sunday. But those people tend to be very skeptical of, of Macron and they they will be more put they, they would tend to be more put off by his arrogance than your sort of But they're not gonna vote for her, right? I mean he he Melanchon himself, the sort of the far left guy, because the socialists, that's the other story, just completely have imploded. They just don't yes. even exist anymore. All you've got is is this like Macron and his party in the center and then uh, the fascists on the one hand, and then the you know uh, Melanchon crazies like the Bernie Bros on the other side. Yeah, um, like it's no it's- Demir, no. <laughs> 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 and and so so, uh, but Melanchon 
told them not to vote for her, right? I mean, he said, you know, you can stay home if you want, but, uh, you know, if you really hate Macron so much, but don't vote for her. Or did I miss that? He did. No, no, that's yeah. true. Um, supposedly, if enough of Mélenchon's voters were to stay home, that would also be bad for Macron. And then on the other hand, I th and also I think you have probably a certain number of Mélenchon voters who are these kind of, you know, also like the Bernie Sanders Trump voters who are sort of like the... Like shoddy. System, like I might as well just. <laughs> I yeah, might they want to well burn it all down, and they're like, yeah. "Let's heighten the contradictions, and let's yeah. create the conditions for the dialectic, and all that like <laughs> communist stuff." There's yeah. probably a bunch of them who think these things, yeah. like Gramsci. Just, I, just, I can just like <laughs> I can just name random, random European left philosophers by their last names, but yeah, so. Um, Okay, but it, it does seem. So there's probably guess, some of those, but probably not, 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 not that many. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I guess you know, um, and before we maybe shift over to Germany, which um, we definitely should talk about. One more thing I wanted to just raise for consideration is, and we sort of alluded to it that are you know are the French Democrats um, in the small mm. D sense, or is there this kind of this kind, this silent reservoir of French folks who like, who long for the pre, the pre-Republic days. I mean, we're at the Third <laughs> Republic now, but um, there are some French Fifth. people who don't necessarily, oh, so, so <laughs> sorry, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, <laughs> it, it, my bad. The Fifth Republic, five of them, that's so many. Oh my God. I know there was a little, a little but some of them have the never middle, come. Yes. To, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. But yeah. um, so some people never really fully came to terms with the new order and they fantasize about the pre Fifth Republic days. So in some sense, they're not even loyal to the regime as it's currently constructed. And in that sense, they're not quite like American Americans on the right who because we, we don't really have a first republic or a previous republic, we just have America. So you can't really go, I guess you can go back in time to different time periods, obviously, but you can't necessarily say that you want to go back to a previous American regime because we've never had one. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's totally right. I think that Americans, you know, for the most part, <laughs> with a couple of exceptions, but for the most part that we sort of uh, consider the beginning of the American Republic um, to be 1776. And we, we've always been a democracy. Of course, yeah, you can talk about the sort of mm, pre-colonial, whatever, that's a different discussion. But anyway, most, most, most Americans sort of like only see themselves as living under democracy. But French, French, uh, French memory is much longer than that. And, um, and they entertain uh, different possibilities of different kinds of regimes in a way that we, that we, I think that we don't. So yeah, I think that's, but again, yeah, another not, stereo. We're not talking about another royalists, stereo. though, right? I mean, you're not talking well, yeah, about. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, I'm sure they exist. That legitimists them, but... exist, and that's not what we're talking about here, though. Really, what we're talking about is French France for Frenchmen, which I just hasten to add is not undemocratic, shoddy. That's all. You know, no, like, no, no. no we're talking pure. about something yeah. different. I uh, no, I'm not saying no. That's different. It's yeah. not French for Frenchmen. It's yeah. actually preferring a different regime in a quite literal sense, because with the founding of the Fifth Republic with de Gaulle, yeah. this is now a different foundation for French legitimacy in the in the post-war era. Um, that, I mean, it's, so it's not just they want 
France for Frenchmen or French France for French people. Um, because you could have that with the current order. You don't need to necessarily go to an original regime for that. So I think it's it's at a deeper foundational level, perhaps. But look, I mean, French people have longer memories. The stereotype of Americans is that, you know, we live perpetually in the present and, you know, um, all these things are are not exactly true in practice. And, you know, we obviously have Americans who maybe long for the late 1700s. Well, actually, we probably don't because that's when slavery was still going on. And I think most Americans don't like that. But anyway, this is all just to say that maybe we should talk about another country. Well, I mean, here, here's here's maybe the, the way I'd pivot to the, the your other essay, the one you wrote for us, uh, Elizabeth, on Germany. Um, but it's it's something that's been sort of on my mind watching the the French election, and you know, let's 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 hope that that uh, our discussion here doesn't seem hopelessly naive when. Marine Le Pen comes out, uh, right. you know, victorious because of all yeah. these hidden people who are lying to pollsters and who really are just moved Wait, by I, her. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I can just say something really quickly is that French pollsters have been dealing with shy Le Pen voters for much longer than American pollsters have been dealing with shy Trump voters. So they figured out how to project that okay. shy. Okay, all right, good, good. So they good, should good. be more Ooh. accurate. Yes. All right. Well, that's that's good to know, and that's that's heartening. So, uh, you know, <laughs> let's let's but let's let's assume then, um, you know, you have this. Uh, uh, Macron restoration um, that, that, you know, the, the forces of sanity uh, or at least, uh, you know, mainstreamism, liberal mainstreamism uh, uh, prevail in France uh, this weekend. I, I guess the, the thing that, that was most striking to me is, again, what I, I posited to you before is, um, and again, Shadi and I went over some of this material last week talking about whether this crisis in Europe is, you know, uh, heralding potentially the, the rebirth of a kind of, again, uh, sensible or maybe even revolutionary liberalism, or at least a, a yeah. heightened commitment to it yeah. uh, and to the values, and which is, I think is quite reflected in your essay. It was a certain kind of, you know, uh, uh, at least in, when you were writing it uh, several weeks ago, uh, this, this, you know, awakening in Germany of, you know, uh, what's at stake, uh, yeah. what, what underpins our societies. Um, and then yet, that's why I brought up that, that, that yeah. you know, analysis from Ben about Le Pen. Um, and then we're watching Germany. Yeah. Um, first, the other thing that happened uh, is Orban got elected, basically yeah. along the yeah. similar, uh, us using similar kind of, you know, I'm saving you from chaos in the world, and it resonated. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, whatever the fairness of that election, he, right. he, he did well. He managed to, to, to mobilize people and his arguments worked. Then you saw it again with Le Pen. She, you know, even if she loses handily, will have outperformed, uh, more than likely will have outperformed uh, previous efforts. No. Um, and, and, I, and, you know, in Germany, the striking thing has been watching it. Um, you know, there was that moment Schultz came out. What's the German word for that paradigm shift? What did he call yeah. that? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's that's what we feel when when he says there's a paradigm shift and there isn't. That's Schadenfreude. <laughs> but but um, uh, you know there was this big announcement and a and a big to do. We had a, a German parliamentarian uh, swing by the offices, you know, give us a, a talk about it. And he 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 was a uh, his analysis to us. Uh, think tankers was uh, at the Atlantic Council was saying that it was the last moment Schultz could have done that because he felt that Germany's credibility was already so battered 
on the European thing. He described it in a really good way. He said he was, uh, the train was leaving the station and Olaf Scholz is running down the, yeah. <laughs> at the, uh, down the station. He leaps across the station, <laughs> grabs onto the railing of the last car uh, to, to save Germans, uh, Germany's sort of, you know, uh, respectability within Europe, given what's been going on in, in, uh, in Ukraine. But ever since then, uh, it seems that he has been uh, slow you know, I mean, slow rolling a lot of the stuff, uh, you yeah. know, very cautious about arming Ukraine. I, you know, I keep following it. There are ins and outs and probably there'll be more ins and outs by the time we publish this. But um, uh, really very concerned about the, the energy situation, you know, uh, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. Germany's very exposed to Russian oil and gas. Yeah. So I don't know, yeah. you know, I, what what's your sense about what's going on there? I mean, you know, very you can take that from any way. You want to talk about Germany, you want to talk about Europe and populism and where we stand, I don't know. Yeah. But, okay, one it. thing I'll clarify though, people should know that if it's not already clear, Elizabeth is quite literally in, in Berlin yeah. as we speak. She is there. So it's yeah. incredible that we're talking to her even though she's so far away. Technology's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and also her, her essay that we've been referencing that she wrote for us at Wisdom of Crowds, it has a very nice title. Um, it's called, The End of History Dies Hard in Berlin. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes. So make sure to check that out as well. But yeah. Yeah. So Elizabeth, go ahead. Uh, um, okay. Where do we start? I mean, you know, Germany and especially Berlin, we're, you know, we're basically right on the Polish border here. So we're much physically closer to Ukraine and to Russia than France is. And I think, you know, I think that plays a role in it. I think, you know, the it's a not that long of a drive to get to the Ukrainian border. So in France, like, you know, the sort of some of these more discussions about, you know, the potential for war in Europe are a bit more abstract. Whereas if you're in Berlin, you're in Berlin, it's pretty, um, it's pretty immediate. Like if anything tips, you know, sort of, uh, if any of the fighting sort of tips over the Ukrainian border into Poland and Poland's a NATO state and, you know, next thing you know, like, that's it. So I, I think that, that, that that's like, that's a sort of significant difference in the feeling, uh, the feeling of urgency perhaps between French voters and, um, and, and Germans. Um, and then in terms of, you know, and, 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 and the other thing I'll say, you know, is um, it, it was something that I alluded to in, in that essay is like, you know, I don't, I don't want to make any sort of like pronouncements about about what you know about what Ukraine is. I think you know probably Zelensky and uh, a lot of people in Ukraine would are are are, uh, are were and are aspiring to become liberal democracy. But I think it's messy. I think there's some nationalistic tendencies um, that sort of thing. I don't want to sort of make any pronouncements about that. But the point that I was trying to make is that looking at what's happening in Russia is sort of uh, is is in some ways more of a revival for these the sort of values of liberalism because it, it really has I mean just today there was a report uh, in the Wall Street Journal of you know some Russian guy in Moscow who um, who works who works for the the police or something and he um, during a f private phone conversation he had made some remarks about how like he didn't think that Ukraine was actually you know being denazified and that he thought the war was wrong and that you know that the um the body count of russian soldiers was being was being under uh under underestimated by the by the russian government so he said these things in a private phone conversation his phone conversation was tapped by russian authorities and the guy ended up he's like in prison now and nobody knows what happened to him so this is like this is like a this is this is like a legitimately sort of like 
that's a Nazi. That's a Nazi tactic. I mean, that's what happened in Germany in yeah. the 1930s. So, I, I, you know. I, 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 it's not to justify anything in any way. I just remember, you know, I was in Russia, uh, that's 2003. I spent a couple of months in St. Petersburg and then, you know, just a, a very, very short time in Moscow. Uh, I was learning the Russian language and, you know, it was right before I went to grad school. So I just, I went and spent some time over there. Um, and I even remember then, you know, uh, it's just, it's, it's a different place. And yeah. obviously they weren't tapping, you know, egregiously people's phone lines. So who knows, quite frankly. Um, mm. And they certainly weren't arresting people and there were more trappings. But this was early Putin. But I just remember one of the things, you know, you're, you're a foreigner there. You, you have to have your passport all the time. Yeah. And, you know, if you go out um, and uh, I just remember just being taught, told by, by colleagues, people at the language school I was at, uh, said, just avoid the police. Just avoid yeah. them. Uh, you know, they'll figure out if they talk to you, you know, first they, they stop people on the street uh, at, at late at night, you know, if they're drunk, uh, they, they stop them. They, uh, if they're, you, they find that you're foreign, they will take your passport and then you'll have to pay the money to get your passport back. Mm, um, mm, mm. And, and so I just remember that, you know, I'd be going to bars with friends and then I'm walking back to wherever I was staying in St. Petersburg and I'd be like, oh shit, there's cops over there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go the long way. I'm gonna go four blocks around the other way so I could just avoid running into cops, you know? And, and it's, it's, so I'm not pushing back on anything you said there, yeah. but it, it's, yeah. it's that like Russia was never a liberal place. Right. Yes, it was yes, always, yes. it was always a, a yeah. like a, 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 a thrillingly dangerous, messed up place. In, in my experience, you know, um, uh, so, you know, but but anyway, go on about the, the sort of the, the, the German thing, because, you know, again, to just drive the point home, yeah. uh, that feeling is there. And I think, yes. again, anecdotally, uh, yes. the voters, as you said, are moved yeah. in this direction, but the government's yes. doing shit. Right. So what's happening? And, <laughs> yeah. I think somebody tweeted somebody. Uh, there was some tweet about, like, comparing the German government to one of those like little, you know, like wind up toys where you wind it up, you set it off in one direction. It just keeps going, 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 going. And in order to change its direction, like you really have to like block its way and force it to like turn it in a different direction. And I think that there's, there's like this just, you know, total inertia and total allergy to, um, to change or to drama in, uh, in Germany and especially in German government that not to, not to justify and not to excuse in any sense. But I think that that's, you know, I have a sense that that's part of it. Um, and uh, there are, of course, you know, this is, yeah, there are, of course, um, some of the German press has been reporting on, you know, relationships uh, between old time German politicians and Russian, you know, their Russian counterparts, both Russian politicians and Russian, uh, Russian companies, uh, Sigmar Gabriel, who is a head of the, uh, who's a uh, high up official in the socialist, uh, uh, social democratic party, uh, just went to visit Gerhard Schröder, who is essentially sort of uh, former uh, chancellor, who is on the board of Rosneft, if I uh, remember correctly, and has Gazprom, stuck Gazprom. by Gazprom. I think it's, I think it might be both. Though, might actually. be both, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and has stuck by, you know, the um, Russian government and Sigmar Gabriel just went to visit him. So there's a lot of these sort of old, old connections um, between, uh, between uh, older German politicians and, um, and their, you know, their Russian, Russian counterparts. Um, on the other hand, you do see some pushback among the uh, among the um, Green Party 
be politicians, and especially Annalena Baerbock, uh, who is the German foreign minister now, and she, um, she of course, uh, also ran for chancellor last year and, and wasn't elected, but, but she's sort of the head of the, of the Greens, which has a lot of support among younger, uh, younger Germans, and she, um, she has carried a different, a different message, insisting that Germany will, you know, will deliver weapons and will do its role and will, uh, will, will sort of participate, uh, fulfill all of the commitments that it said it would. So, but it's a, can I em- go ahead, Shadi? Yes. I just want to emphasize Elizabeth, Elizabeth's point a little bit more and just take it, take it a step further. And I don't know if this will actually come out in the final episode or, or it'll be edited out. But when we had a little interregnum earlier, I sort of have jokingly said that Germany is the sick man of Europe. So if you guys already heard that, I think it's worth emphasizing a second time <laughs> that um, this idea of Germany that we as Americans have had, that it was or is the leader of the free world, at least under Donald Trump with Angela Merkel, a lot of American liberals like fantasized about Merkel and Germany and things like that. And looking back, a lot of that discourse seems odd and um, and even obsolete because I think at a very basic level, it was Merkel who was helping to deepen ties with Russia and furthering Germany's dependence on Russian gas and helping to close the nuclear reactors and coal-fired plants and so forth. So when we're talking about um, Germany's scandalous dependence on Russia in this regard, um, you know, there's a a number of people are complicit, including our favorite Angela. Um, And um, I should also say that I didn't make up the sick man of Europe thing. That um, that was actually mentioned in passing in a Financial Times article, which is actually very good about how this all came to be. So I'm just kind of riffing off of that. But it is really worth underscoring that Germany has become, at least in my view, a liability for Europe and the European Union. And none other than Donald Trump saw this coming. And this is where it's really important for us to include a link to this amazing back and forth between, I guess, Trump and who was on the other side, Demir? It was Jens Stoltenberg. It was during a NATO summit. Yeah. Yeah. So so Trump goes on this like long, slightly unhinged riff, but he gets at a fundamental truth. He's like, you know, Germany is threatening its own national security. Like it's 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 becoming dangerous because of its dependence on Russian energy sources and he keeps on just pillaring the Germans on how they've let this happen over the years and how they've basically gone in the pocket of the Russians. And if we had listened to that like three or four years ago, we would have thought it was so unfair and mean and here he is basically scolding Stoltenberg. But actually, and we will include the link, watch it and just like enjoy the moment. <laughs> but, That's some serious schadenfreude. I don't know for whom exactly, probably not <laughs> yes. for me, but for somebody. Well, yes. But so, you know, Elizabeth, just the, the, the you know, the, the Shadi's point, uh, the CDU has a, uh, has a big role to play. I mean, Merkel was yes. in power for, for yep, a huge absolutely. part of this. But what's interesting, yep. right? I mean, you single out Baerbock, um, but, you know, she's, she's uh, uh, not only in a, in a 
you know, a pretty broad coalition. So her, her mm. sway is limited. And she's the, the young, more idealistic side of, of the Green Party, which itself is, is you know, not, not like a, a fount of, 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 of pureness in a lot of ways. I mean, on the energy stuff, um, as I understand it, she's fighting a, a pretty tough battle with her own party to, you know, trying to, to balance weaning the country off of, uh, of, of Russian energy without, you know, uh, compromising the environment, which is what they're there for, right? And, right. and, and they're, they're pretty ideological about that. And in the SPD, the thing that's, that's most striking, uh, I think there was an article in World Politics Review, I'll try and dig it up, but it was, it was really good. It was about a guy growing up in Germany, and I think he, maybe one of his relatives was, uh, was Ukrainian. Um, and he talks about, you know, being raised in sort of this SPD, uh, you know, strongholds and going to school and being, you know, how, how this, this ideology, which is a, a perversion of, uh, you know, Cold War Ostpolitik taken to the yeah. next level yeah. of, of a, a real sincere belief in, yeah. um, in reaching out to Russia in, uh, you know, I mean, there's a level of condescension there where the, you know, Germans think that the Russians need to be civilized, but also can be civilized through trade and, you know, interaction and engagement <laughs> and peace, that this is, you know, the lesson they've learned from, you know, being Hitler and everything else that like, you know, there, there's ways to, to get to good things in, in peaceful sort of interactions. Um, but the 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 um, the striking thing there is that, that again, it's, it's, it's a kind of, it's a kind of arrogance, it's a kind of blindness, um, but that that also is still playing out here. That yeah. that you know you have a, a a kind of arrogance amongst the green amongst the greens, which at least is more understandable because their entire party exists to save the planet and the the climate. Um, but then a kind of like ingrained arrogance among the SPD, and maybe Schultz is part of it. The problem, maybe yeah. he's just not strong enough and not strong enough of a leader. Maybe Bauerbach's strong enough that you can pull her party, but but he can't do it to his. I mean. Again, to Shadi's point about the sickness there, there's there's yeah. there's something, right? Yeah, because Germany, of course, did, um, you know, in the sort of, I guess, West Germany, in the sort of sixties and seventies during the Cold War, and even after after nineteen eighty nine, I guess, sort of positioned itself as sort of this, yeah, uh, sort of. Um, in between East and West, right? Sort of this kind of maintaining relationships both with Western Europe, with the United States and and with, with Russia. And then of course these old school social democratic parties, I mean, they, they're they not, not, they're not communist parties, but during those times, of course, Russia was the, it still was the sort of other ideological, ideological model uh, that one could hold up against, yeah, US liberal, liberal, liberals of capitalism, that sort of thing. And yep. so I think there's still that, you know, there's still, and, and again, these are among older politicians. I mean. I don't really know. I haven't. I don't know any like younger SPD politicians so well. Well, there aren't any left. You know one. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a feeling that if you talk to them, they are not going to sound. You know, they're not going to sound at all like Schultz or like a Sigmar Gabriel or or, 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 or anything anything like that. Yeah, there is some sort of leftover um, and totally misplaced. <laughs> But then there's the and business you, lobby, right? I mean, what about that? The, I mean, that's the other thing. You, the, the business lobby. I mean, you, you hear that that's the thing that, yeah. The, the other really striking thing about the German debate is, uh, you know, you've had these economic analyses saying, uh, you know, they could they could switch off technically 
and take a hit, I forget, I've seen, you know, between three and 5% uh, GDP hit if they were to really just switch it off within months. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's not insubstantial, but it's also, you know, uh, and coming all at once, it, it really could be incredibly disruptive. Uh, but, you know, the, the argument is, well, you know, suck it up. People are dying. And, you know, if you, you especially yeah. Germany are so, but the, the business communities are in like really yeah. freaked out by this. So there's yeah. a lot of pressure yeah. coming from that too. Right. I mean, yeah. and I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the German, like the German, like the export uh, manufacturing industries and that sort of thing. Although as far as I can understand it, I don't know. I think that like, especially Eastern Germany is dependent on like, if you like, I, you know, Berlin is in, in former East Germany. So like, if I were to go out and buy gasoline right now, I think I would be buying I would be buying Russian. I would be buying Russian gasoline. Whereas don't if buy I'm it. in Western Germany, <laughs> no, no, no. But if I were in Western Germany, I think that that you know that part of the country is less, um, is, if I understand correctly, is less dependent on Russian. And and that's where a lot of industry is located, of course, mm. is in Western Germany. But I but, but I understand. I understand the. But isn't um, this? It seems to me point. that this is there, there's a a broader indictment to make. And Demir, you've been, I guess you've been sort of saying this for a long time, but I think it's worth saying it very explicitly. What Germany has become post-Cold War, a lot of what it embodies, this liberal faith and progress and perpetual peace, that economic interdependence will diminish the prospects of war, these founding assumptions that are at the core of the German idea today have basically been disproven, or maybe not entirely disproven, but significantly undermined. And that to me, so there's two stories we can tell mm. here. One is that the new life is being breathed. Um, I don't know what the version of the verb there is. New life is being breathed or breathed into the liberal idea. The other possibility is that this is actually underscoring liberalism's Achilles heel that there are these fundamental weaknesses that have to do with the presumption of eternal progress towards some fixed endpoint. And now we can't really believe in that anymore. So you, you need to kind of move away from this kind of soft liberalism and go to a liberalism that's a fighting faith that is yeah. almost, I don't wanna say militaristic, but one that more deeply appreciates the uses of hard power and and military force and that there are bad people in the world and they need to be if not outright destroyed then at least defeated and that goes against i mean to even use that language in a german context the idea that enemies must be defeated through the preponderance yeah. of military force that is very much contrary to the german spirit at least yeah. in in more yeah. recently no i think that's true i think that they just they cannot they have to hold on to this idea of, you know, liberal liberalism maintaining, you know, inter 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 um, interdependence and you know that that maintain peace and you know, the sort of absence of militarism, the absence of need of militarism, that sort of thing. I think that they sort of have no choice but to hold on to that because they can't. Wait, sorry, why do they have no choice? Well, because they they cannot allow themselves to, you know, to think about or to accept or to start to consider the second version that you just described, the more sort of 
you know why not liberals impacted by hardback b- b- because of because of history that they just they yeah just, yeah, yeah, of, they, well, yeah 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 they, they the other can, h word history and um yeah <laughs> you know, I, I am aware of that history but th- that's not necessarily a hard constraint like i get why they're reluctant yes. to move in this direction but theoretically theoretically but i think yeah but i think psychologically they are not capable of it sorry that's what i was trying to that's the point I was trying to make. That they so in this case, they'd be them. fighting a new hit. They'd be fighting a new, a sort of new pseudo Hitler in, in Vladimir yeah. Putin. So it's almost the exact opposite. They'd be using military force and being hawkish to fight a would-be Hitler on their eastern flank. That yeah, seems like almost the of, opposite. Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of sort of op-eds in the German press right now that are saying exactly that. It's like you know you, you know you said you said never again, and now here you are faced with this you know potential sort of new incarnation of all the things that you said never again to, and you so, are not able to. So maybe that's a question for you, Elizabeth. I mean, uh, you know, I, I how, how, uh, how, and again, it's just, it's just a, a sense and, you know, we're constantly updating our priors. How likely do you think, uh, in the medium term, do you think that this will prove to be a cathartic moment for Germany? Or how much will uh, these mental habits of mind persist? Yeah, just take a hazard a guess. Well, <laughs> I don't think anything happens quickly or dramatically in Germany. So I don't think that there will be any sort of fast change on that. But I think, you know, I do think it's probably, it's probably a generational thing also. I think, you know, people who are our age who um, didn't grow up with any immediate experience of the war and their parents may have been born after the war but they would have been born into a germany that was very much still being reconstructed it was still sort of filled with nazis and former nazis and that culture and that sort of thing so they you know people our age were were born into a germany that um that 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 they didn't have any sort of direct experience of the war even if it if the you know even if they um have been compelled to um, take responsibility for that history uh, nonetheless. But I think that they don't necessarily want to, you know, they don't want to continue, they don't want to have Germany continue to be that way. You know, that they want to, they want to see a Germany that takes responsibility for itself, that plays a a role in the world and a force for good, whatever that might require of it. So, you know, and, and that's changing also. I mean, that is, but it, it, it's changing slowly. So like, you know, in the German elections um, last fall, you had an incoming, uh, the new uh, parliament that was seated in the Bundestag last fall is, is much younger than, than the one that was seated five years ago. So you do have a generational change happening. And I think, you know, I think that that will, um, I think that that will be different, but I think that it will be, I think it will be slow. I, you know, the, the thing that's striking to me, and this is where, just my lack of knowledge about German politics gets in the way, but again, you might, you might, you might, you might sort of be able to, to nudge me in the right direction. You know, the, the, there was a moment of catharsis again for Germany um, that that happened in the Balkans, and, and Joschka Fischer, a Green, mm-hmm. was at, yeah. at at the helm when there was supposed to be both a change over sort of Germany yeah. about waking up to the world as it is, and you know, belatedly they did, and. A German, you know, he was foreign minister, right? Uh, Joschka Fischer at the time, um, and a Green, and it was supposed to also usher in a, a, a sort yeah. of a new, more worldly Greens. And again, as I understand, the Greens 
that did create a rift between sort of an old guard and a new guard. And, and you know, Baerbock in many ways is of the, the Fisher school, I, I think, <laughs> within the Greens. But, but, you know, again, it's striking. Again, uh, I think yeah. the, the article Shadi talked about in the, the FT is, is really striking um, about how we got here on the energy question, but just in general, how the Germans went back to sleep and now they're struggling to wake up again in a way. Um, do you, I don't know. I, I don't know if you have any insight on, on, on how that all happened and what, what, they're, <laughs> what, what is that, but uh, it's, it's striking nonetheless. Yeah, well, you know, you do also, I mean, as Shadi sort of alluded to before, I think you do also have um, a fair amount of, of reckoning going on now in the German press with, um, with Angela Merkel's legacy. And of course, yeah. she was very much sort of celebrated. She was in, uh, in power for, in office for 16, 16 years, I guess. And, um, and, um, and I, I know people who thought that she was, you know, treated by much of the German sort of left-leaning German press with with kid gloves. And now they're going back and and really sort of re-examining that. And there's some some mea culpas happening and that sort of thing. So um, I don't know if that, you know, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, no. Um, I, but I think there is a kind yeah. of ongoing. I think maybe there's an ongoing attempt to answer precisely you know what you have you have formulated i i mean you know i i, I like shoddy's sort of uh, uh framing earlier about you know the the, the kind of the, the the failures of liberalism but i mean it's not just germany I, it's in so many ways it's it's the particular kind of liberal vision that undergirds the eu that's just been taking a battering for a long time and really it's it's where the populists have managed to score points and sort of sneaking through this and i i i you know i i uh I, I, it is an open question to me whether you know a a, a militant liberalism reborn. Mm. I like that shot. You should work with that on something. But it, it's okay. Militant know, liberalism, liberalism reborn. reborn. Yeah, that's Done. your next Monday note. Write it. Um, but it's it's uh, you know I think I, whether that has a chance in Europe more broadly, and that's yeah. why all of this talk about you know whether liberalism is is going to be woken up and you know. Frank Fukuyama's hopes about this, and a lot of people writing about this, that this is a wake-up call. Uh, it's, it's. I wonder whether it's. There's something about that that kind of European pacifism, which, which is predicated on, on. Maybe that's the 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 actual hinge point, Shadi, in in what you're talking about. Is that there's there's a maybe a fighting liberalism requires a a, a belief in a fallen world, um, whereas the sort of complacent. European German liberalism is one that like all the battles have already been won, that it's a logical progression, that it's like teleological, you know, necessary, deterministic. Um, and that, that I think perhaps needs to get beaten out of the Europeans properly yeah, and, and this, acceptance and of tragedy, also, right? Hmm. And this was also a problem that o Obama had in my view, that, um, you know, the arc of history bends towards all the things that we like, including justice. But if you really believe in, sorry to use this word, Demir, morality <laughs> and and moral progress to combine your two <laughs> least favorite words together in a phrase that, you know, I, as, as listeners will know, I'm all for morality and foreign policy, but you need hard power for that. And you need to really have a ruthlessness about sometimes if necessary, about how to use it against your enemies. 
that there there are existential or you know potentially existential battles that require this so-called liberal militarism now it's hard to find liberals who you know in incline naturally in that direction and this is always a tension with liberals that they don't necessarily they're not necessarily able to summon the in, the inner strength to fight for the ideas they they ostensibly believe in and that i think is a paradox at the heart of liberalism is that do you have enough people who are willing to fight for it and do what's necessary to fight for it and i think that's an open question and I don't think it's a coincidence that the great liberal icons of the last 10 years, Barack Obama and Angela Merkel, um, are falling into this uh, this retroactive assessment or reassessment of their legacy. But I think that it's happening for a reason. And here we are. And um, there's also the arrogance. It's, it's also not a coincidence, I think, that Obama was pretty arrogant Merkel, definitely an arrogance there. I mean, she's the one who I guess coined the phrase, there is no alternative, um, which is just about the most arrogant thing that you can say in politics, that there is no other way to do things. It's basically a restatement of the end of history. History has ended. Hmm. All we have left is technocratic tinkering. I'm the one who has the government and the expertise to figure out how to tinker and onward. And that's the only direction to go in. And that's being shattered time and time again over the past, what is it, five, six, seven years? Yeah. Right, Demir? No, yeah, I think that's right. Right, but Elizabeth? I guess the idea of like this sort of more, just this sort of idea of more militaristic, kind of more militaristic liberalism. I mean, that kind of, that describes what we would think of as neoconservatism, right? I mean, like the- That's, Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and early, exactly, early exactly. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you could argue that the, the way that that was acted out was a sort of, you know, bastardization of what, what you might think that a more militant- The ideal neoconservatism that exists in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but it was historically, you know, potentially, uh, at least in the near term, kind of discredited. In yes, way that, that is true. That, other, that is true. Yeah. But what is neoconservative but liberals mugged by reality? <laughs> and um, I mean, that's quite literally <laughs> how, like, what new how the phrase, like, how the term came about. It was pe people who were previously on the left who were mugged by reality in foreign policy, but also domestic policy um, in various ways. Um, and Norman I should Pedoritz just- Norman was literally mugged on the street. And he was just like, God damn, I'm, an, I'm a conservative now. A new you conservative. I, I don't know, is that true? I, I, I'm joking, I think. I think, maybe not though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And obviously there's also perhaps like a, a semi-racist undertone if you want to go back to some of the neoconservatives in the 60s and 70s as they're kind of, like um, evolving into their 1980s Reagan stances. I mean, they're, they're yeah, I mean, anyway, don't have to, but, but there is, there are some of these um, problem, can't say that problematic is not a word we use on the podcast, <laughs> some concerning undertones. But um, I should also just clarify for listeners that um, 
I I am not agreeing with Elizabeth about her characterization of militant liberalism as neoconservatism. I think it's an interesting point to raise, but I don't necessarily agree with it. I, I also I'm not sure what the the you mean you mean like the the criticism about welfare policies of the Great Society. You mean that's the problematic racist stuff? I don't know if that I don't know if I'd go there either. I think they were right in a lot of that. The sort of domestic neocon stuff. I, I mean, yeah, what, yeah, what but, specifically racist? Well, but was you had there? the sort of the invasion of Iraq, right? I mean, that no, 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 no. But he's stuff. talking about the pre-Reaganite uh, domestic stuff, uh, and he, he just he just called a bunch of people racist. I'm just curious. No, what, no. <laughs> look, look, look. I think that look, if you were alive in the in the 70s and you were like talking about crime and the welfare state, you probably couldn't help but be racist. Like oh, it almost on. came with the territory. No, come on. Like in I, retrospect, though. No, like looking, no. No, if I don't we, think so. I, I really, are you pulling that right now? Are you saying that 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 like questioning the great society? I mean, I think that's a damnation of our current moment. That that like criticism of the great society is would today be seen as racist? That's nuts. No, no, okay, Demir, because, Demir, no. <laughs> where are you going with this? No, look, okay, but keep in mind the time that we're talking about here. We're talking about rising crime in inner cities. We're talking about the riots that were happening late 60s into the 70s. It's in that context that you have this discourse about being mugged by reality. And obviously that's racially tinged. And um, at that time, there weren't the same norms against being racist and saying racist things. Like, you know, whether, you know, people who are still valorized today, William F. Buckley, of course, Not if you go back to what he said in the 60s and 70s, he said things that we would today consider racist. I'm just saying that it kind of goes along with the territory. We could probably I, find any number of statements from leading neocon icons from the 70s. Here's a, I guess what I'm saying is this. Everyone was kind of racist in the pre-times. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe. I, I, I really do want to just sort of drive a, a, a narrow point there, though, because... Uh, I, was it was it was it Pedoritz who I, that I never read uh, uh, my Negro problem and yours that's like that sounds pretty oh yeah that's, maybe that's what I had in mind yeah that's I totally what that's kind of what was like percolating in my head yeah, yeah that, 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 that sounds that, sort that, of sounds, thing. that sounds problematic I'll use the p word for you there <laughs> but but uh, uh, but I've never read it so I I don't know maybe maybe it's a, it's a clever jujitsu move I have no idea but but the the um, but but I do think you know I think you should make a distinction between what Buckley was doing and I think what Buckley was doing in that point, uh, especially with his rhetoric uh, against Martin Luther King, I think you, there's a, a lot to point to there that that is in fact racially tinged, lots of dog whistling. Um, I do think that, you know, where I just raised an objection here, and I know we've gone on a weird tangent here about neoconservatism, <laughs> but like where I do want to raise the, the, the objection is that I think a lot of the, the, the objections to the Great Society were, in fact, uh, well-grounded. In fact, you know, uh, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and uh, the work that he did uh, with, you know, the, the decline of the black family and a lot of the, the sociological research in that that also was used to basically dismantle and talk about, you know, the problems of Johnson's, uh, you know, uh, great society programs and the 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 idealism that that fueled this kind of you know domestic state building which was completely out of control. Yeah, I think that's in fact really should be uh, revered and not looked at. You know, not even like dog whistled in the woke way. And like, well, you know, clearly they're talking about poor people, and by that they mean blacks, and therefore it's implicitly racist. I really do object to that because I, I you know. That what I don't like about that in particular is that uh, it valorizes then 
any kind of social programs right now as implicitly anti-racist, which is also bullshit. Um, and that's that's where where I felt like I wanted to just like pull back shoddy. That's all. <laughs> Okay, maybe what I really meant was like racist and scare quotes. Maybe, well, I'm, I'm not, I mean, obviously some of it was actually racist, but I, I'm sort of make, this is sort of a bigger meta commentary on how standards of speaking have changed and what appears racist at one moment was not racist 10 years ago. And we're always kind of adapting to a new standard of progressive purity. I think that was partly what I was trying to do there. Mm -hmm. And I think, <laughs> but putting all that aside, cause that's not really the, um, the main the point here. here. <laughs> we, we won't when, play when into this up, one, I Elizabeth. Meant, I meant, I was really referring to foreign policy, but yeah. that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's yeah. neither here nor there. Well, no, I mean, I think your point on foreign policy is, is well taken, which is why, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not in Shadi's camp on a lot of this stuff. I, I do think that, you know, liberalism is in crisis. And I think, you know, Shadi's way is one way of rehabilitating it. I don't think it's inherently toxic and inherently leads to a bunch of Iraqs. But you're absolutely right to bring up Iraq as, you know, the... Uh, uh, the epitome of a different kind of hubris, which is paralleled yeah. in sort of European sort of pacifist hubris, is this yes. idea that we are, in fact, you know, uh, the most powerful nation in the world and we're going to reshape the rest of the world. I think it, it's lacking in both as a sense of humility about, again, a, a very tragic sense about the world. Now, Shadi doesn't like that because he thinks it breeds pacifism and he's probably right. Uh, not pacifism, pass passivity. And he's probably right about that. But um, uh, there we are. I think that's 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 where the rubber meets the road on a lot of this stuff. But perhaps there's a way to acknowledge this fallenness, this sense of the tragic, but to basically weaponize it for... In, you know, for aggressive foreign policy actions within limits, of course. And it's always a challenge <laughs> with, without doing like really dumb things like Iraq. But of course, the, the question that that then raises, is it possible to have a lot of power and to use it and to not fall under the sway of your own hubris? I mean, that's the perpetual tension. And one might argue that once you start talking about foreign policy in this way, where you emphasize the importance of hard power and the use of force, that you can't help but lose control over, over that narrative. And you start to lose your sense of constraint. Because of course, like in theory, we would all say that there should be constraints to military action, that things like Iraq should not be repeated but i suppose the concern is that like when you're actually in the heat of the moment will you be able to constrain your own power in such a manner or is that inherent to the very exercise of power that you overuse it uh, that's a good question i don't know you know um whether it's democracies or you know just the the constraints of the system you know you, you have faith that, that democracy constrains these things this is another thing that we've been arguing for the last few weeks i'm i'm, I'm much less uh, sanguine about that, that I think uh, we all sort of, you know, fly off the the deep end on a lot of this stuff. Uh, Basically, for this policy to work, I need to be the national security yes. advisor. You need to be emperor. <laughs> That's emperor, the only way it works. Yeah, yeah. Emperor, emperor. <laughs> A benevolent emperor. Yes, yes, yes. Of course, that's we all. The that's the ideal what, regime. That's what exactly, exactly <laughs> that, exactly that. Agree, Elizabeth. We're all in agreement here. <laughs> on that right, note, guys, on that note, I think I think uh, uh, we've. I don't know if we've come full circle, but we've uh, we've come a long way, baby. <laughs> <laughs> 
Beautifully put, Demir. <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right, guys.